words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. him as the Messiah, the son of David, but he reveals himself this week as a different type of king, a king who's um, willing to humble himself. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when he records Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he writes that this took place to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble." Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. So Jesus on this day reveals himself as a humble king. I want to focus mainly on our reading from Philippians chapter 2. When Paul is drawing attention to the humility of Jesus Christ, this is, most scholars believe, a uh, early church hymn that Paul is quoting here, the Philippians if this was an early church hymn, would have been familiar with this. And it's written in poetic language, and it's really a two-part hymn. The first part dwelling on the humility of Jesus, the second part dealing with the exaltation of Jesus. And so we're just going to focus on the first part of this hymn that Paul lifts up to the Philippian congregation, and his purpose in doing so is, is to say, I want you to be like Christ. In your relationships with one another, I want you to imitate the humility of Jesus Christ. We're not saved by imitating Jesus. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us. But because of what he's done for us, there will be a desire out of gratitude to be like him. And so Paul is reminding these Philippians who Jesus is. And he's calling them to imitate his humility. I was reading earlier this week um, from Warren Bennis, who is a leadership expert, I think one of the fathers of leadership studies. And in an article, he said that he learned leadership lessons when he was a young officer at 19 in World War II. And he said, when I first put on my officer's uniform, I stepped into a role and I instantly became an officer. Just by putting on that uniform, something about him, he said, changed because this role of officer had prescribed attitudes and behaviors. And once he put on that uniform, he knew he had to embody those attitudes and those behaviors. And then he talked about the models of leadership that he saw before him. His officer above him became a leader who embodied those prescribed attitudes and behaviors. And the point for us is as Christians, Christ is our model. And we are to clothe ourselves. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's an image that Paul uses elsewhere. Romans 13, 14. Clothe yourself with Christ. 
We are to adopt the attitudes and behaviors of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is urging the Philippians to do. Verse 5, have this mind, have this way of thinking among yourself, which is yours in Christ. He wants them to have a Christ-like mind in the way they relate to one another. And so then he goes on and reflects on two aspects of Jesus' humility, which I want to look at here, and then we'll talk a little bit about application. Two aspects of Jesus' humility. First is incarnation, and then is crucifixion. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is a reference to Jesus' incarnation. He leaves the glory of heaven and takes the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Now, when Paul says in verse 6 that Jesus was in the form of God, he means there, the way he's using that word is that Jesus shares the very nature and essence of God. He is the perfect form of God. If you want to know who God is like, what God's character is like, look to Jesus Christ. That's how uh, he is using that word, form. And then he says, Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And this is a difficult phrase to kind of make sense of and to translate. What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Some people have taken this to mean that Christ emptied himself completely of his divinity when he became man. And that certainly I don't think is true. I don't accept that position. It contradicts the rest of the New Testament, which proclaims that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was with God and the word was God, John chapter 1. So that view, which has been popular in some circles, I think is contradicted by the clear teaching of the New Testament. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Another way to take this is that even though Jesus was fully God when he was incarnate, he necessarily had to let go of some of his position and his prerogative and obviously his glory when he left heaven to become man. He's still fully divine, but he gave up something of his divine rights and status and prerogative. I think that's closer to the truth. There's another way to translate this, which was new to me, but I came across it in my studies. According to this one scholar, you could translate this. He did not count equality with God to be a grasping thing, but a giving thing. That to be divine for Jesus was not to be grasping for himself, but to be giving for others. That's another way, possibly, to take this. However you take it, and of course there is a mystery here between the the interplay of Jesus' divine and human natures. The fact that Paul is teaching here is, is, is that the eternal Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, left the glory of heaven... And took on the form of a servant, a slave, when he became man for our sake and for our salvation. 
and out of obedience to his father. And that was an act of great humility. When I was in graduate school, I studied for a time the readings of Jonathan Edwards. Does that name ring a bell to some of you? You will be familiar with, I'm sure, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, That was something that I read in high school in American literature. And that's what most people know about Jonathan Edwards is that he was a hellfire preacher. And he certainly believed in the reality of hell and judgment. But he also preached and taught a lot and maybe even more about heaven. He tried to motivate his congregation to be heavenly minded and to than to love the promises of God given to us in scriptures about eternal life. And in one of his sermons, he he describes heaven this way, and he wrote this as a relatively young man. I think he was in his early 20s when he wrote this description of heaven. It struck me when I read it. He said, heaven is a world of love because God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of life. Every stream of holy love Every drop that is or ever was proceeds from God in heaven. So you have this image of a fountain of overflowing love. And there dwells the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, united in this infinite and inexhaustible fountain of love. It's a beautiful description of heaven. I hope it makes you want to go there. But the point that I'm making is Jesus was there. The eternal Son of God was there. He was there enjoying this infinite, inexhaustible fountain of love, and he left that place of security and glory and beauty and goodness to become a servant and give his life away as a ransom. A great act of humility. By the way, the humility of Jesus' incarnation shows us that a humble person is not a weak person. Don't equate humility with weakness. Jesus was in a position of great power and authority. Humility is a strong person stepping down to serve others. The humility of Jesus' incarnation. And then think about the humility of Jesus' death. His crucifixion. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the will of his Father, willingly obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, death itself is humbling. Death itself is a humbling experience. It's it's a recognition of our finitude, our limitations, the end. So death itself is a process of of humility. And as Christians, we follow our Lord Jesus on this path of humility, knowing that on the other side there's resurrection. So we enter into that experience with hope. But it's, it's humbling. Death itself is humbling. And the eternal Son of God willingly submitted himself to that humbling experience. But death on the cross is so much more humiliating. It was designed to be humiliating. It was designed to be degrading. Think about the humiliation of Jesus on the cross. Before he was even crucified, he was spat upon and hit. And we quoted that passage from the Old Testament, the prophecies of that, that he willingly provided his back to be beaten. 
And then at the crucifixion, the soldiers strip him, strip him of his garments. So he's hanging there exposed. The religious leaders mocked him and used his words against him. And I hadn't thought about this before until I heard Bruce Walkie talk about it a month ago when we were at a clergy conference. And Bruce Walkie, who's a great biblical scholar, was one of our speakers. And he talked about the suffering servant. And he gave a lecture on the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he talked about the horrors of the cross. And he said that uh, those who were crucified lost all bodily functions and control. It was a humiliating, degrading, devastating experience as he hung exposed on the cross. And he went through that for us. On our vacation, uh, one of the things that we did in the car to keep our sanity (laughs) for a 14-hour trip is we listened to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia on CD. And... um, we made it through the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you've read the, if you've read the story, you know the lion is Aslan. He's the king of Narnia. He's the rightful ruler of Narnia. He's majestic. He's powerful. He's good. He's beautiful. And his enemy is the White Witch. And at the end of the book, Aslan gives himself up, sacrifices himself to save other people. And before she kills him, the White Witch commands him to be shaved, to humiliate him. And, and C.S. Lewis recounts it this way. I'm going to just quote here. Snip, snip, snip with the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. The children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Aslan looking small and different without its mane. The whole crowd began kicking him, hitting him, spitting him, spitting upon him. That's Lewis's metaphor for the humiliation of Jesus Christ who on the cross is shorn of his majesty. And so Jesus is this great king of humility who gives himself out of obedience to the Father and for our sake. And Paul is bringing this out because he wants the Philippians and he wants us to follow the example of Jesus. And the problem was, one problem that was facing the Philippian church was there was factions that were beginning to develop in this community. There were divisions that were taking place. In in chapter 4, he talks about a conflict between two women, two very prominent women in this community, Euodia and Synteche. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Synteche to agree in the Lord. There's disagreement happening here. Help these women who've labored side by side. Help them to reconcile. Because it's going to take humility for them to be together again. We don't know why they were divided, but we know there's a division. And when there's a division, it takes humility to confess my own faults and to reconcile with others. So Paul is so concerned here about humility. And and the reason is that not only is it the example of Jesus Christ, but that's the path to unity within a community is as we humble ourselves in our relationships with one another. And then Paul gets very practical. And this is why I think it's helpful if you have your Bibles open, or you could open now to a Pew Bible, uh, to Philippians chapter 2, because I want to just touch on, before we end here, some practical wisdom that Paul gives on growing in humility. 
becoming more like Jesus. So on page 980 in your pew Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, before he even meditates on the humility of Christ, he gives some admonitions in verses 3 and 4. And this is how we can grow in humility. The first in verse 3 is this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant, more important than yourself. Let's just stop with that one. What Paul is asking us to do is examine our motives. Examine our hearts. Am I operating from a place of position? Conceit? From pride? Ambition for myself? Or am I... um, Operating from a position of humility. And then he says, and this is just amazing, in our culture, this is so counter-cultural, and it's really been counter-cultural in every culture, but our iPhone, iTablet, iTunes, selfie culture. He says, think of other people more significant than you. When my heart is filled with selfishness and pride, that's exactly what I don't do. I don't think of people as more important than me. I think of myself as the most important. I need to be recognized. I want to be esteemed. When I'm filled with pride and self-centeredness, I'm good at finding the, the speck at another person's eye while I've got a big log sticking out of my own eye. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this particular verse, says this, We must be quick in observing our own defects and infirmities ready to overlook the defects of others. We must esteem the good which is in others above that which is in ourselves because we best know our own unworthiness and imperfections. If you're in tune with who you really are, if, if, if before the Lord you've been honest about your own faults and weaknesses, if you're allowing the Lord to reveal those things, the dross of your life and your own sin, it's easier to... To pursue that, to esteem the good that is in others above that which is in ourselves because we know our own unworthiness and imperfections. But we need massive amount of grace to accomplish this, and we're not going to do it perfectly. But this is the way. Check your motives. And then verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest or concerns, but also to the interests of others. So look inward, check your own motives, and then look outward. Be concerned not only with what's important to you, but what's important to others, the concerns of others. I think those two verses right there, of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, if you want a practical application is this week, let's just all meditate and try to put in practice Philippians 2, 3 and 4. And try to live this out and ask God, by his grace and mercy, to help us to live this out, to become more Christ-like. You know, when we are more like Christ and we begin to reflect something of his humility, the unity of the church is strong. And the witness of the church is bright because people are drawn to humility, aren't they? Isn't that true? I was listening the other day uh, to a sports talk show. They were talking about the NCAA tournament. And the host was talking about the undefeated, still undefeated, Kentucky basketball team. Did you see the game last night? Amazing. 
And what, what she said about the, the Kentucky basketball team, I don't know if this is true or not, because I haven't followed them all year. But she said, I think even though Kentucky is undefeated, a lot of people still like them because they're a humble team. And, and the coach has taught them to value humility and selflessness. And people in America love that in a team. That's true. People love to see humility in a team, in a corporation, in a leadership, and in the church. And certainly in the church, it has to be a value because our leader is a humble king. We celebrate Palm Sunday. We celebrate a humble king who left heaven to become a servant, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And as we contemplate Jesus' humility and his acts of humility, and we're going to be able to do that throughout this Holy Week, my prayer is that our love for Christ will be renewed and our hearts towards others will be softened and will become increasingly more like our Savior to his glory and his honor. Amen. Let's pray. Let's take just a moment to ask ourselves this question in God's presence. How is the Lord Jesus at this season in my life in the position He's placed me in? How is He asking me to grow in humility, to clothe myself with this aspect of Jesus' attitude? Maybe it's about serving others in your position. Maybe it's about what's going on in your heart. A self-centeredness that needs to be replaced with an other-centeredness. Maybe it's the pride of not admitting that I need Jesus' salvation in the first place. Because the first place to start in humility is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's the place we all have to keep coming back to. Maybe for some people today, the first step for you, you've never done this, is to come to the foot of the cross of Christ and see that what he did there was for you. He's not a victim of history. He willingly offered his life for your sin. He took your sin upon his shoulders, bore the judgment that you and I deserve so that you can be reconciled to God and have peace with God. And maybe he's calling you to admit your need for him today. Lord Jesus, speak to us about where we're at with you. Help us to, all of us, admit our need for you and our need to be like you in our everyday life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.